All right, Genesis 14. Um, Now, we're going to read the passage. Usually, I let God's word be the first word. Today, I'm going to explain a little bit. Uh, Because it's easy to get lost in passages that have a lot of historical detail and a lot of place names and people names and foreign names. So I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of what's about to happen in this story, and then we'll read it, and hopefully we can stay on track, okay? So what's going to happen in this story is it's, it's it's a war story. So if you were to look at a map of this region of the world on, let's see, this will be your right side. Over here is Mesopotamia right? This is where Babylon is, modern day Iraq and Iran. And over here is the land of Canaan that Abram was promised to receive and where he's living. And so what happens is there are five kings down here in Canaan by the Dead Sea who are in some sort of allegiance, some sort of political uh, agreement with this king in Mesopotamia named Kedor Laomer. I'm saying that 10 times fast. So these five kings are allied to this one king for 12 years, and then they rebel. Maybe they stop paying tributes or whatever. So Kedor Laomer, this Mesopotamian king, gathers three other kings, so a coalition of these four kings, and they come to wage war on these five kings in Canaan. Tracking? So they leave Mesopotamia and come following Abram's journey, if you'd know it, uh, up north, because you can't cross this big desert, and then down into the land of Canaan, and they're conquering these tribes as they go, these tribes of giant peoples and all sorts of things. They come all the way down past the Dead Sea, back up to the Valley of Sidim at the southern tip of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And there, this huge battle is joined. And in that battle, the Canaanite kings, the five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other ones, uh, Admon, Zeboim, and the other one that I can't remember, are defeated by Mesopotamia. And they're taken captive, they're plundered, and Lot, Abram's cousin, is taken captive as well. And then those Mesopotamian kings go north, back toward where they can loop around back to their land. And that's the most confusing part of the story. The rest of it should be simple from the narrative. Abram stages a rescue for his nephew. But I wanted us to get our our heads around sort of the political movements there so we don't get lost in these names of the nine kings and the places they come from. So let's read Genesis 14 now. I'm just going to read the whole chapter straight through. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, those are the Mesopotamians, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, 
Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went on their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the, Am- the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, that's far in the north. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you've ever read that out loud. I don't think I ever have. (laughs) Sometimes the Lord uses stories like this in the Bible to teach us complicated doctrines and theological things to believe. And sometimes he uses stories like this to rebuke us or to discipline us, to confront us gently or strongly about where we're falling short. But sometimes God uses stories like this, surprisingly, to just comfort us, to bring us comfort and strength when we really need it. And one of the realities of being a human, of limited power and limited knowledge, is that we're very prone to fear. And fear touches every aspect of our lives, and our spiritual walk with the Lord does not get a free pass, does it? Fear of not being worth loving. Fear of not being worth rescuing. Of not being worth hanging on to or keeping around. Fear that we'll we'll, we'll sin too much. We'll pray too little. Whatever. That we'll do something that will be the final straw for God. Or that will prove that maybe we're not a Christian after all. Because look at me. My prayer for you today is that you will find comfort from this story. I believe it's here to actually comfort us. 
Or maybe it's a different kind of fear, like a, a fear of failure. Um, not just I'm afraid to fail because failing's hard, but a fear that you might fail because you know your own weakness. Like going into battle, but knowing you have an Achilles heel. Maybe there are certain things in your life that you avoid like the plague because you know your own weakness and you know if you get in contact with this thing, you're not going to be able to keep your own footing. You'll give in. My prayer for you today is that you'll find strength and comfort from this passage. In Genesis 14, we see the man who two chapters ago feared famine and hightailed it to Egypt. See the man who feared for his own life and basically sold his wife into slavery to, you know, care for himself. We see this man now fearless. So brave. How? If we're going to grow in fearless faith like that, we'll need to understand two things. These are the two points we're going to talk about today. One is the rescue mission and two is the priest. And just so you're not thrown off later, this isn't a sermon where I'm going to tell you to be more like Abram. This isn't a three steps to the fearless life kind of talk at all. Um, This is a sermon for anxious and fearful people like me, and maybe like you, to help us find real rest, like soothing rest, for our palpitating hearts in Christ and in his ongoing work for us today. That's what we're going to talk about. So, number one, the rescue mission, subtitle, Fear No Unworthiness. As the Mesopotamian kings move south through Canaan, they're raiding and plundering. They go down through the mightiest tribes before they get to the battle with Sodom and Gomorrah, and and they wipe them all out, or at least they conquer them all. These giant tribes that we'll encounter later But if Abram knew of it, the story of the news of that conquest down the land that belonged to him didn't move his heart or his feet into action. When the four invading kings joined up with the five local kings in the battle in the Valley of Sidim, it's such an intense battle that uh, there's two ways to interpret the text. I'm not sure which is right. Either way, either the kings and the people fall into these giant tar pits and die as they're fleeing, or the horror of battle is so awful that they throw themselves into the tar pits just to escape it. One of those two. But if Abram knew of that battle, the horror of that war wasn't enough to move his heart and his hands into action. None of that stirred him to intervene. But what did Why did he leave the Oaks of Mamre, where he had a good thing going? Why did he put everything at risk? Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. That was the moment. That's when his heart and mind and feet and hands became engaged for the battle. And he went off in pursuit. It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, the Hebrew says literally, he drew out his trained men like a sword. I love that. And he pursued them. Abram charged into a desperate pursuit of the enemy, of a, you know, four armies essentially, uh, because the man that Abram loves has been taken captive. 
think it would have been like that, um, you know, the end of the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, when Merry and Pippin get taken captive by the orcs, and Aragorn and his two friends go in pursuit of this orc army, just running nonstop for days. I think that sort of grim desperation, that sort of face set like flint to whatever may come, I'm going to catch them and rescue my loved ones. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. <laughs> Abram's grim determination and his fierce love in this story stand in a really sharp contrast to Lot, who by now, if you haven't been with us during the, the last few weeks of this series, um, Lot will be called in the New Testament righteous Lot, and that's been baffling us for thousands of years <laughs> because every choice he's made has not been great. It's been self-centered or greedy or whatever. Lot, who rode on the coattails of his uncle's deception to get rich in Egypt. Lot, who chose the best part of the land for himself in famine, essentially consigning his beloved uncle to whatever fate may fall to him. Lot, who was drawn deeper and deeper into the wickedness of Sodom. You'll notice over these chapters that first he pitches his tent in the valley, then he moves toward the city, and eventually, in chapter 19, he's living in the city and sitting with the elders of Sodom at the gate. He's moving closer to the wickedness, not farther from it into faithfulness. What has Lot ever done to deserve Abram's love and rescue? But Abram has set his loyal love on him nonetheless. It's got to be something in the character of Abram that makes him love like that, not something in the character of Lot that stirs Abram to love. So when Abram hears that Lot is in slavery, unworthy though Lot is, he leaves his dwelling place to go rescue him. I want to talk for a minute about that dwelling place. Um, it says that Abram was in the Oaks, he was living at the Oaks of Mamre when he heard the news. Now, the Oaks of Mamre are kind of on the south end of Canaan, and so to pursue uh, the foreign kings up all the way to Damascus in the north, he had to go quite a long journey at a fast pace. But the Oaks of Mamre are a place similar to where we've encountered before the Oaks of Moray, where Abram first built an altar to the Lord in chapter 12. Mamre is described a bit, a bit like Eden. There's some Eden ideas going on here it should remind us a little bit of a garden. Not literally, but literarily. Mamre, uh, the word means fat of the land. In other words, this is a place associated with a word where you can expect them to have the best food. It's like going to the Merrick's house for dinner. Yeah. It's, you know he's going to bring it and cook for you. Mamre is the place of the best food, the fat of the land. And it's in the valley of Eshkol which later in the story in, in Joshua, we'll know uh, Joshua sends spies into the land of Canaan across the Jordan, and they go to the Valley of Eshkol, and they bring back these giant clusters of grapes. They're like, this is an amazing land. The fruit here is unbelievable. And beneath the Oaks of Mamre is where the Lord will appear to Abram in a few chapters. The, the God of everything whom no eye has seen somehow makes himself seeable to Abram under this tree. 
He'll eat with him here. He'll walk with him here. This place, the Oaks of Mamre, will become Abram's home base in the promised land, the place from which the blessing is sort of disseminated through the land. And most of the scenes with Abram from here on out revolve around this place. It's by this place that he purchases the first lot of land, in, no pun intended on lot, the first piece of land in the promised land. This is the place where the cave of Machpelah, where, where his wife is buried, where the patriarchs will be buried. It's an important place. So all that sort of garden and Eden imagery, though, we should understand that Abram, this is like his paradise away from home, his Eden away from Eden. It's a safe place, a holy place. But when the one he loves is carried into slavery, he got up from his paradise immediately. He didn't consider it worth clinging to, and he left his dwelling place and pursued and went on a rescue mission. Abram chose love of unworthy lot rather than the you-get-what-you-deserve-ism that's so common in my heart. And he left his home behind to go rescue the captive. Now, where on earth would you and I be if the true and better Abram had chosen you-get-what-you-deserve-ism rather than love? Where would we be if Jesus chose to stay in his dwelling place where he had glory with God from eternity past rather than leaving it to go on a rescue mission? In other words, Abram's rescue mission for unworthy Lot is here to point us toward Jesus' rescue mission for unworthy you and unworthy me. You know, in John's gospel, Jesus talks about the glory that he had with the Father before he was incarnate, before the second person of the Trinity became a human, became enrobed in human weakness and flesh. He had such splendor, such joy, such perfection that we can't even dare to imagine. And that's what he left for us. Because someone he loves, though they're unworthy of rescue, was taken captive. Sorry, my mic keeps dangling off my ear. I know that's distracting. Without the rescue of Jesus, we are in slavery. We are captives. Not to a Babylonian king, well, maybe metaphorically, but we're captive to sin. That means that we can't help ourselves but to continue to sin. To, to continue in sin and death, we're like birdie in the cage. You can't get yourself out of prison. You're a captive. We're completely powerless to free ourselves. And like Lot, everything, so ourself and all of our things have been taken captive. And unless God stages a rescue mission, we and all of our resources will only be used to benefit the enemy's purposes, his building projects, and go to his causes. It's only God's common grace that keeps us from atrocities. But Jesus did not leave us to wallow in our slavery or die in our slavery. He staged a rescue mission. And his rescue mission began with the incarnation, where he became a human. And his rescue mission came to a crescendo at the crucifixion, where he paid the price that we owed for 
our sins when he got in that jail. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, in other words, since we're human, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The incarnation means that God loves you so much that he made himself killable for you. The almighty creator and possessor of heaven and earth enrobed himself in weakness and limitation for you. And what have you or I ever done to be worthy of love like that? To be worthy of that kind of fierce love, the grim determination of the Nazarene who set his face like flint toward the cross in pursuit of the ones he loves. Faith in Jesus means getting your mind and heart around the rescue mission and receiving it. And when your heart begins to comprehend just the slightest piece of the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ for you, that's when you can be fearless. You can fear no unworthiness. You'll know that he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you because you did nothing to deserve getting rescued in the first place. It has to be in God's character to love us this fiercely, not in our lovability, which means we can relax. (laughs) He's got us because he doesn't change. If we didn't deserve the rescue, then we don't deserve his ongoing commitment to us either. Both of those come from his character. We can't mess up one too many times for the grace of God. Not possible. Let me end this first point with one final illustration. Uh, Years ago, I had to go deep into debt to buy a car that I shouldn't have bought. Uh, This is before I met my wife, maybe 15 years ago. I bought a little 1999 Ford Focus and... um, I loved it because it was my first car that I bought, that I, I was on the name on the title. And things went downhill quickly. I lost my job. This was 2008, um, the, the market crash. I was in marketing, so I lost my job along with a lot of other marketers. I ended up getting evicted from my little apartment, and my car got repossessed. And that was one of the most humiliating moments of my life. This guy showed up to get the car back with a sheriff just in case I caused trouble. Um, Yeah, very humiliating. I had proven myself unworthy or incapable of affording this car and paying off my debts. So they took it back. Now, a few years ago when we returned from our two-year stint in Scotland, an amazing family, brothers and sisters in Christ, gave us a minivan, just gave it to us. Wonderful vehicle. We thank God for them and for his love to us every day that we drive it. It was just a gift. There was no debt incurred in this gift whatsoever. So I know for certain one thing about my minivan. It will not get repoed. There is no debt. 
It was just a gift. So no unworthiness on my part can ever take it from me. That's true of you and Jesus. Here's how Paul describes the rescue mission of Jesus in Colossians chapter 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I love how visual he gets here. He says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You don't owe a penny. You're free. So you don't have to fear. That's the first point. Fear no unworthiness. Point number two, the priest, subtitle, fear no temptation. You know you've written your points well when you have to announce the subtitles as subtitles. Fear no temptation. As of last month, 6,338 people have successfully climbed Mount Everest and reached the top. Um, it's obviously a very grueling climb. I don't have to tell you that. It's incredibly dangerous. And since I think since 1953, when the first person summited it, um, at least 311 people have died making that journey. That's not insignificant. But what surprised me and maybe you'll know this, but it surprised me to find out that most of the deaths of those 311 have occurred not going up the mountain, but coming down the mountain. See, right after you summit Everest, you've got to get out of there fast. And you're in about 1,000 meters of what they call the death zone. Mount Everest's death zone is where you've got this sense of euphoria because you've just summited Everest, who wouldn't feel incredible, right? You let your guard down a little bit because you think the hard part's over. We've done it. You're, you're kind of proud. You're self-congratulatory. But then there's also this lack of oxygen. And you're lulled into this false sense of security. And you're physically exhausted. You're in the death zone. Now, fighting... Kedor Laomer's army to rescue Lot would have been very difficult for Abram. 318 people in that day wasn't an insignificant gathering of people for military combat, um, but this was four armies he was going up against. So it would have been very hard, but that's not where he was in the most trouble. That wasn't the point of Abram's weakness. The victory, the moment after the victory, that's Abram's death zone. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's on the descent down the mountain, so to speak, that Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram. In this moment of incredible weakness, where Abram could have pat himself on the back, look at this victory that I have won with just a few men against such an overwhelming enemy, in that moment of physical exhaustion when he's going to be most prone to temptation to pride and to the temptation that the king of Sodom is going to offer in just a moment to say, why don't you take the spoil? Why don't you get rich from this? All the while trying to put Abram in his pocket for later. That's when Melchizedek comes out. 
He comes to meet him in the death zone with an oxygen tank. So who is this Melchizedek guy? Hebrews 7 in the New Testament it in, uh, interprets him for us. And the author of Hebrews shows us why, um, why and how this mysterious king priest of Salem points us to Jesus. And he, he, he shows us this by looking at what is in Genesis 14 and by showing us what isn't in Genesis 14. Let me explain. There are four things that the author of Hebrews points to that is in the text. Uh, and here, here's what those things are. One, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek in Hebrew. So they point it to that. Two, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. We identify that with Jerusalem later, but the point is that they call it Salem, which means peace. It's from Shalom, Shalem, Shalom. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Third, Melchizedek receives tithes from Abram, and fourth, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And the conclusion that the author of Hebrews draws from those last two points, that he receives tithe and blesses him, is that clearly Melchizedek is greater than Abram because the greater one blesses the, the inferior one. And clearly he's greater than Levi, even the first priest, since he receives tithes from Levi's ancestor. So that's what is in the text that the author of Hebrews uses. Here's what isn't in the text. Who's Melchizedek's mom and dad? When was Melchizedek born? When did Melchizedek die? He just parachutes into the story. Now, if I interpreted the Bible that way, you'd probably say I'm being a little loose and free, <laughs> right? Like preach expositionally, pastor. But that's how the New Testament interprets it. So we take our cues from the Bible instead of forcing our reading on it. Hebrews says that we can plainly see in the text that Melchizedek, at the story level, lives on. He doesn't come to death in the story. Levitical priests appointed by Moses died, but Melchizedekian priests, priests in the order of Melchizedek, live forever. Hebrews 7, 15 through 17 says, a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. I love that sentence. <laughs> the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, quote, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what's the point? Um, what does this have to do with Abram's post-victory death zone? Here's the point. In his moment of weakness and his moment of temptation, when Abram needed to stay humble and stand strong against the temptation of the king of Sodom, he needed to be blessed and strengthened by this kind of priest. He needed to encounter the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and receive bread and wine from his hands. If you want to see a picture of what Jesus' earthly ministry is like, the 33-ish years that Jesus' feet were on soil here. What was he doing? Read the story about Abram's rescue mission. 
That's a picture of Jesus' ministry. If you want to see a picture of what Jesus is doing right now, look at Melchizedek. Uh, continuing in Hebrews 7 from verse 23, he says, quote, There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. This makes sense. They didn't have term limitations. You just, you're a priest until you die, and then you're not a priest anymore. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Praise God. He is the kind of high priest we need because he's holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for his people's sin. In other words, here's what Jesus is doing right now. He is in heaven with God the Father as priest interceding on your behalf. Yeah. Seriously. In theology, we call that the heavenly session, what Jesus is doing now. It's glorious. We never think of it. We should think of it often. So let's look at Melchizedek for just a moment as I wrap this up. What does Melchizedek do that shows us what Jesus is currently doing? He does two things. He blesses God and he blesses Abram. Those two things. In other words, he intercedes on Abram's behalf. Jesus is interceding for us. Melchizedek interceded for Abram. Here's what I mean. Abram had a victory. Melchizedek said, blessed be God who gave you that victory. In other words, he took Abram's victory and turned it to praise to God. That's what Christ your priest does for you. All of the singing and prayers and hearing the word of God that we are doing this morning together, Jesus himself, your great high priest, is currently in heaven with a heartbeat, taking our offerings and praise and lifting them up to the Father in his holy name with such perfection that we could never muster in ourselves. Whatever distractions you've had to face into today, don't keep your praise from reaching the Father in heaven because you have a priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right. I think that's done now. (laughs) The second thing that Jesus is doing that Melchizedek does is take, so he takes our praise and blesses God. He also takes God's blessing and offers it down to you. God said that he would bless Abram. Abram struggled to believe it at times. But here, the priest of God Most High walks out onto the victorious battlefield and he blesses Abram from God, on God's behalf. That meant something to him. That kept him going when he needed it. It's what a priest does. They lift worship up to God and they declare and pronounce blessings from God. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek.
That's what he's doing. So that he can save to the uttermost all who come to him. He exists right now to mediate God's blessing to you. That's awesome. In our moments of weakness and temptation, in our death zones, what could be more emboldening, courage-infusing, strengthening than that? I think it was Tozer who once said, what, what couldn't you face into if you knew Jesus was in the next room praying for you and you could hear him praying? He is. <laughs> he is. That kind of encounter with the king and the priest, it's what, Stephen, it's what kept Stephen going when he was being stoned. A glimpse of the Lord Jesus, the king of righteousness, king of peace, coming out to meet him. As we move toward taking the Lord's Supper together, let's remember that the Lord Jesus himself designed this bread and wine that Jesus offers to us as a discipleship strategy, as one of the ways in which the priests of God, and I'm not talking about myself, I'm your pastor, I'm not your priest. Jesus is our great high priest, and we are a holy priesthood who trust in him, all of us. But one of the ways that our great high priest mediates and sends God's blessing to you in real time is through bread and wine. That's how Jesus designed it. It's a discipleship strategy. So we regularly eat this bread and drink this cup as a, to be strengthened tangibly, to be nourished and comforted in the Lord, not because it's magic. <laughs> There's nothing about this. I mean, this is lovely bread that Norm baked, and it's port and, and delicious Kedem grape juice. You can buy and bake that stuff anywhere. That's not magic. There's no power there. The power is in the hands of your great high priest, who wants to love you and bless you and strengthen you and comfort you. Abram knew that the bread and wine that Melchizedek provided was priestly because of that mediated blessing, and he knew that it was nourishing and sustaining. I'm coming to a close, but I see that in verse 24, because after Abram receives bread and wine from Melchizedek, he says to the king of Sodom, I don't need your food. Oh, let the young men have their food, but I'm not hungry. Why isn't Abram hungry? He was sustained by the priest. He didn't need to eat Sodom's food. He had Salem's food. So when the king of righteousness and peace comes to you in your weakness and offers you bread and wine, it's no small thing. Whereas Abram was refreshed from a battle he fought, when we eat this bread and drink this cup that we're about to do, we are refreshed after a battle that Jesus fought for you. Because we're not Abram in this story, running after Lot. We're Lot in this story. And our Savior rescued us. Let it be true. <laughs> Let it be true. That's a new one. It was his body broken. It was his blood shed. And it was his rescue mission of unworthy you and unworthy me. So Nathan, why don't you come up and lead us in song?